Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 54. Last week, we gave an introduction into vidui, into confession, and the tachanun prayer. We explained why we confess, the value of confession, the psychological benefit, the spiritual benefit, the vulnerability that it has with God, especially after the Shema, after the Amidah, after that connection with Hashem, we can now be vulnerable, we can now be sensitive to understand the repercussion of our actions. Let's dive in to the Vidui, the confession prayer, a little bit more specifically, a little bit deeper. Um, again, the biblical commandment, confess, If you conf- if, is if you sin, confess to God. That's It's that simple. There's no... Um, it, biblically speaking, when it comes to fulfilling the commandment, there's no required text. The sages later penned a text of confession and are assuming that if we did any sins, it falls under one of these categories. <laughs> if we did something beyond one of those categories, we can always confess to God in our own language. But they've there is this standardized text of confession. Let's read it. What we're going to do is read the first, uh, the second paragraph. In the Hebrew, it's Ashamnu. It's the second, sorry, it's the second paragraph of the confession. It's the second to last paragraph on the page. In the Hebrew, it says Ashamnu. I'll, I'm going to quickly just read through it in the English just to understand what we're talking about over here. We have transgressed, we've acted perfidiously, which in Hebrew, Bagadnu, we've betrayed God, we've robbed. We've slandered, and not all these are necessarily in the literal sense, depending on the person, right? We've acted perversely and wickedly. We have willfully sinned, and we've done violence. We've imputed falsely. We've given evil counsel. We've lied. We've scoffed. We've rebelled. We've provoked. We have been disobedient. We've committed iniquity. We have wantonly transgressed. We've oppressed. We've been obstinate. We've committed evil. We have acted... Okay, whose English is good here? My Hebrew is a little better. <laughs> uh, uh, about, wait. Where are we? We've acted perniciously. There we go. Perni- perniciously. Perniciously. What is pernicious? So that's the problem. I'm not even sure what some of the English means. Okay. We've acted <laughs> abominably. We have gone astray. We've led others astray. The Hebrew is much more significant because if you look at the Hebrew closely, you'll notice that each sin follows the sequence of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. Look at the Hebrew side. Ashamnu, we have been, we're guilty, or we've transgressed in the English. Starts with an aleph. Bagadnu, we've betrayed you, God, with a bet. Gazalnu, we've stolen with a gimel. It follows the sequence of the alphabet. What is the significance of sinning (laughs) or repenting or or, or uh, confessing for sin in sequences of the alphabet. Uh, it's cute, it's poetic, but what is the purpose? When the angels pray, they pray alphabet order. So maybe it's something to do with that. Okay, make it more make it more relatable to them. But but there's a lot of prayers, you know, the Amida is like the is the um is the essence of prayer. It doesn't follow the alphabet necessarily. It um this might be you know the, there are, there are certain things we have like the ashray we do there's certain prayers that follow the alphabet and there's always reasons for them certain prayers don't necessarily take that route 
Um, here's what the Chida explains. The Chida was, his name is Rabbi Chaim. It's an acronym for Chaim Yosef David Azulai. He was one of the Sephardic sages going back about a century and a half ago. And the Chida explains that you can't possibly mention every single sin. So only general sins are mentioned. But we follow the sequence of the Aleph Bet because if there's any sin that we transgressed that falls under the category of Aleph, have in mind that it's included in there. If there's any sin that we transgressed that we didn't mention, falling under the category of Bet, put it in there, etc. Same thing with the whole Aleph Bet. To make it more inclusive, to include more than what's actually in the text alone, we follow the sequence of the alphabet. And we have in mind that we're confessing to God not only to what is necessarily listed here, but sometimes we have shortcomings that might not be specifically listed, but we can somehow find it within the alphabet. That's one explanation. But I'd like to take you on a little bit more of a mystical journey. What is alevet? Or more specifically, what are letters? What are the function of letters? You know what Kabbalah refers to letters as? Bodies. What's the soul of the letters? The message. Uh, right? The, the, the message that the letters are communicating are the soul. The letters are like a body. The message that's being communicated is the soul. So I'll give you an example. Mm. A good speaker will focus on a good message and find the right words to communicate that message. A lousy speaker who thinks he's good, perhaps an arrogant speaker, will be very focused on word choice and on eloquence, but might not have much to actually say. You know, if you're, maybe you've heard a speaker just go on and on about nothing, but they have a wonderful, like, stellar vocabulary. But what are they actually talking about? Nobody knows, right? Like a politician. <laughs> nothing, nothing really of value to teach. They just have a bunch of body, no soul. A good speaker has a great message and tries to commute. And same thing with an author, by the way, a sign of a good author. If you can keep your book short and brief... To the point, use as little body as necessary and as most and as much soul as as possible. If you can, it's a balance because you can't. If you underdo it, you're not going to be clear. If you overdo it, you're going to lose people. Right. All this to say that the function of letters—that's the body. So when it comes to confession, when it comes to sin, we're articulating the body of sin. What's the soul? The soul is the lust, the drive, the passion. Sin doesn't usually happen, especially if it's intentional, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. A person sins because they have a drive. Right? In the Tanya, we refer to this as our animal soul, but you have some sort of emotional drive pushing you. Right? The mind says, hey, do what's right. Do what's healthy. Do what's good for God, what's good for the world. Do the right thing. Do the Torah thing. The heart says, this is fun. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> this is easy. 
This is more comfortable. This is something I better identify with. So there's a lust, there's a passion. And when we sin, we invest passion into a negative, into a body, into the body of sin. The role of repentance and of confession is not to cut short that passion, although it led to sin. That's a big mistake. Why is that a big mistake? You need that passion. You just need to rechannel it. It's not bad. It just took you the wrong direction. What you need to cut out is the action, not the passion. Is the behavior. The way the Kabbalists and the way Hasidus describes Teshuva, it's cutting the behavior short. And it's not cutting the passion short. It's rechanneling the passion. It's it it's um it's a lot more fun to talk about them, <laughs> that's for sure. But I, I think this is an important message for ed educators. And if there's any educators, um, you know, ed any educator who's gonna find themselves listening to this even after this course beyond, this is so important. People have energy, people have passion. And when that passion is pulling us in the wrong pushing people in the wrong way. You can't cut the passion short. It's the behavior that needs to be cut short. The passion has to be rerouted. One of the examples the author of the Tanya actually gives, he doesn't mention this in the Tanya, he mentions this in a different book, is you know when you're fighting your animal soul, he says it's like a horse. But you don't want to kill the horse. You want to ride the horse. You want to train the horse. You don't want to kill the passion. You want to ride it. And we see this in the Shema, by the way. Love God with all your hearts. And Rashi says, why does it say hearts in the plural? Because <laughs> we have two hearts. We have divine passion. We have animal passion. We have to channel the animal passion. What we're trying to cut short is merely just the body, the letters. There's a special focus on confession, specifically in sequence of Alephet. Because it's the body of sin, the letters of sin, representing the body, the action, the behavior, the physical representation that we want to cut short, the passion we want to keep. Even though it led to sin, we want to rechannel it. Make sense? Yeah, we're all, we're all in the same arc here? Yes. <laughs> awesome, 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 awesome. Yep. Now, this is important to note. We've described confession as something that's vulnerable. I had I said the Shema, I said the Amidat, my own personal silent prayer, I've connected to God. I can now be vulnerable with him. Well, then why are we saying this in the plural te uh, tense? We have sinned, we've acted, um, we have betrayed you, we have stolen, right in the Hebrew, Ashamnum. But God knew, right? These are all plural. All of us. This is between me and God. Why am I dragging everybody else into this? We're all one soul, right? And that that and th that's an important message of of confession. That we're all one soul. We're all in this together. To the extent that even if I know that I didn't do one of these sins, 
I'm still going to recite it. Because there's other people that are less than perfect. It's not my imperfection, but I can confess on their behalf. They can confess on my behalf. I did something wrong, and somebody else is going to say, we've transgressed. You know, the famous Midrash, where it describes the two people in the boat, and one guy's drilling a hole in his boat. The other guy says, what are you doing? You're going to sink the boat. He says, I paid for the seat. I'll do what I want, right? We're all... Uh, we're all um, or the, the the way it's described in, in more Kabbalistic lingo, the Jewish people are like one body, a body of people. Some people are the head, some people are the toenails and everything in between. Um, but we're a body of people. And the body's connected. It's actually, a, uh, the Talmud says this. Talmud gives an analogy of somebody banging a, a nail and he accidentally hits his hand. The other hand isn't going to take revenge. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Because it's the same person. Right? We're all one people. You know what a great analogy is of this? Um, a contemporary analogy. Have Has anybody ever done acupressure? Not acupuncture, acupressure. Acupressure is a facet. Maybe acupuncture as well. But acupressure is fascinating. They, If you have certain health issues, you can uh, massage your pressure points. You go to a specialist who can massage your pressure points. And I know a guy, he had back issues. And the specialist was somehow messing with the pressure points in his feet. <laughs> and, no, and another guy has knee issues and they're messing with the pressure points in your neck. Because it's all interconnected. It's all one body. Apparently, the theory of acupressure is that you don't look at each body part in a, you know, in a vacuum, isolated. It's all one. As Jews, we're all one. We've mentioned earlier that the greatest indication that we've prayed properly is that we feel a sense of oneness. Because there should be a shift that takes place before and after prayer. I'm not saying there's always going to be this shift. It's something we work toward. It's something we aspire toward. And hopefully we'll feel it as we uh, journey and our feelings mature. But the theoretical experience we're supposed to have is becoming more soul-oriented after davening. If I'm more soul-oriented, if I'm more sensitive to my soul, I'll be more sensitive to your soul. That's just the way it works. We know this from chapter 32 of Tanya, right? If I feel my, if I'm, if I look at you and I see a soul, that's because I'm being soul-oriented. That's why the last blessing of the Amidah, he who blesses the Jewish people with peace. Because how do I know that I've done this properly if I feel more peaceful as a whole? So now, when it comes to sin, I don't look at, look what I've done, look what he's done, look what they've, we're all in this together. We're all one people. We're all in this together. There's an incredible sense of unity. If you flip to page 55, as part of the Tachnun prayer, and you're going to see this a lot throughout um, this season as we're reciting Slichot these days, and especially on Yom Kippur, the 13 attributes of mercy. Yud Gimel Midot Harachamim. This is in the middle of page 55. It's those two lines that are recited only when there's a minion. 
let, let's just look at the English for a second. Let's start from the top of the page. I'm going to read from the top of the page. Do you see it? God, you were slow to anger. Okay, I'm going to read through it quickly because this is this is really, really important because you'll see this is an incredible, this is just incredible. God, you are slow to anger. You are called all merciful, the all merciful one, and you have taught the way of repentance. Remember this day and every day, the greatness of your compassion and loving kindness toward the descendants of your beloved. Turn to us in mercy for you are all mercy. You are the all merciful one. With supplication and prayer, we approach you as you had made known to Moses, the humble one in the days gone by. Turn from your fierce anger as it is as it is written in your Torah. May we find shelter and lodge in the shadow of your wings. And on day and on the day when the Lord descends in a cloud, overlook our transgression and erase our trespass. As on the day when he stood with him, Moses there, heed our plea and hearken to our supplication. As on the day when Moses invoked the name of God, as there it is said, and then the 13 attributes of mercy, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Lord, Lord, benevolent God and compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding kindness and truth. He preserves kindness for 2000 generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And he cleanses. This is a special two lines with that introduction as well. And here's why it's special. These 13 attributes of mercy represented in those two lines represent a special deep connection to God. Because he, here's how forgiveness works. There's different types of forgiveness. There is, okay, I'm just going to drop it. I'll be more patient with you type of thing. Right? And there is, I'm so connected with you. How can I allow this to get in the way? And that's what the 13 attributes of mercy awaken within God. I'm so connected with you. How could I possibly allow that to get in the way? And I, I'm going to sh show you something from the Talmud here. Because this is just fascinating. This is fascinating. I'm just going to translate over here. The background of the 13 attributes of mercy was when the Jewish people sinned with the golden calf right after the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. We just got the Torah. We just experienced divine revelation. And several weeks later, we're literally cheating on God. Moses comes down. He's furious. He breaks the tablets. Fascinating discussion as to why, but not for now. And eventually God says, I'm going to forgive them. And these lines are recited. These 13 attributes of mercy. This was the symbolism that we've been forgiven. That God finally forgave us for this deep sin. He says, I'm, I understand that I'm connected to you and you're connected to me and nothing can get in the way. Our relationship is unconditional. Our love is unconditional. You're forgiven. By the way, you know when that was? When that took place? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is when we were finally forgiven for the sin of the golden calf, we receive the seven, the, the second pair of tablets. And the Talmud says, quote, I'm just translating in English, said Rabbi Yochanan, if not for scripture saying it, I wouldn't have been able to say it myself. We've learned 
that God wrapped himself in a talit, like a shliach tzibor, like the chazin, like the person leading the prayers. And he showed Moses this prayer. And he told him, anytime the Jewish people sin, perform this service and I'll forgive them. It wasn't just a historical um, situation where God forgave us. Anytime we sin, recite this prayer and you're going to be forgiven. Anytime we sin, reawaken the divine connection through the 13 attributes of mercy and you'll be connected. You'll be forgiven. Why, why does it have to be with a minion? There's certain prayers that are holy enough that we only say it with a minion because of that holy, because of that special. Right, things that, that are have an element of what's called Kedusha in them. Now, just side point. There was a there was a rabbi named the Shalah Hakadosh, Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz from I'm going to say the 1500s, and he says, "Look at the Talmud. God tells Moses, tell the Jewish people to perform this service. What do you mean perform this service? It's a prayer, or they should recite it." He says, "God doesn't want us to do lip service. He wants action. Commit to action, and we'll be forgiven." But here's an interesting thing. It's a beautiful story, right? God puts on the... Why did God have to put on a talus? Now, it might not be literal, might be quite figurative, but what is the message here? God puts on a talus, a white, beautiful talus, and he appears before Moses. Anytime the Jewish people sin, recite this prayer, you'll be forgiven. What does that represent? But was it also tefillin? Like he saw the, the knot? So there was a point where Moses just saw the knot of the film, but, but in this specific section of the Talmud, God put on a talus and he recited, maybe it was Shabbos. It was Yom Kippur. No, it's filling on Yom Kippur, right? Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, where's the talus? Anytime they say and put on this, what, what is the significance of this talus? So here's an insight I just read today. I thought this was beautiful because it's going to change the way we think God views us. It's going to change the way we view people. This is a teaching from Reb Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, known as the Kedusha Slavi. And here's what he explains. What would happen if God would judge us based on how we should be? Right? In other words, let me, let me put it this way. Where did the soul come from? It comes from God, right? We say it in the beginning of prayers. Flip back to page five on the bottom. My God, the soul which you have given within me is pure. Right? The soul that you've given me to Horahi, it's pure. We had this pure soul coming from heaven. The soul is a piece of God. The soul has clarity. The soul gets it. The soul knows with every fiber of its being that there's a right and there's a wrong and it's clear as day and night. The soul should be held to high standards. To very high standards. The body, not so much. You don't know it. You don't know better. You were indoctrinated, right? <laughs> into this society that you live in. But the soul, born into high standards. 
it should have high standards. And if God were to judge us based on where we came from, you should have known better type of thing. That would not be good. That would not be uh, pleasant, I should say. Good or not, I don't know. Not my, not my call. Certainly wouldn't be pleasant. But God doesn't judge us based on where we came from and where we should be. How does God judge us? He meets us where we're at. He recognizes that that soul has journeyed into a body and has been born in the environment it has been born in and raised and fed values that perhaps are not natural to the soul and not healthy for the soul. Perhaps brainwashing the soul a little bit, indoctrinating the soul, skewing its idea of what's right and wrong because it's now so focused on what, just what's comfortable and what's uncomfortable and what feels good and what doesn't feel good. Right? The constant battle between the soul and body. God recognizes that. God recognizes that the soul has been invested into a body and that it's going to go through these challenges. God is willing to judge the soul not based on where it came from or where it should be. But God is willing to meet us where we're at right now. God is patient enough to do that. God is wearing this talus. He's covering himself, reminding us, I know that your soul is covered, so I'm covering myself. I get it. I'm going to look at you from that lens. I understand. I'll be patient with you. And we're reminding ourselves that God is willing to come down to our level even if we're not feeling that holy. He's willing to look at us through the lenses of a talit, <laughs> the lenses through like a body, the lenses of something external, knowing that we have been living a life that might be external. And that's why we say, Vaya'avor Hashem al-Panav, the Lord passed before him. Vayikrani called out the following 13 attributes of mercy. He passed. God is going to pass through. He's going to pass through and pass down onto our level. Panav. What does Panav mean? In the English, it says before him. That's what else face. Does face. Isn't Panav? Pa okay, good. Panav is face. Panav also means from the word Pnimiyut, the depths. God is going to allow us to experience the depths, his face. Remember, John, you mentioned Moses could only see the back of his tefillin, right? That's not a very meaningful connection, a deep connection. I mean, if we saw that of God, that would be pretty cool. But we're going to experience the panav. We're going to see him face to face. Despite the situation where we are in, despite the challenges, despite the limitations we have, he's going to meet us where we're at face to face. He's going to put on that talit. He's going to cover himself. And I say, I understand that you guys are covered up as well. I get it. And I'm going to be patient with you. Imagine we looked at people, by the way, in this way, the way God looks at us. We refer to God as infinitely forgiving. Um, it is hard, man. It's hard. You know, it's easy for us to give, forgive the first, second, third, maybe fourth time. And God is just forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. He understands where we're at. He understands our predicament. He's not just looking at our soul. We don't want him to look just at our soul because then we're going to have such high standards. He understands that we have a body. He understands that we have challenges. 
He's willing to meet us where we're at. So, so here's the story. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. Is that why I often hear it said a Sadiq is held to a higher standard because they don't have the right. schmutz that... Right. They, they have less schmutz to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. So so the story was there was a there was a Hasidic Jew. His name was Rabchacha Fagan. Just to, to give some insight into who this guy was, he was like the attendant or secretary of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, just to give the historical context. He was a holy Jew. And at the start of the communistic regime, Soviet Union, you know, Judaism became a lot more difficult to adhere to. And under pressure, there was a certain individual who started to keep his store open on Shabbos. He felt like he needed the money and it was communism. You had to bring in a certain amount and he didn't want to start messing with with the Russians. And under pressure, he's decided he's opening his store on Shabbos. Rebchachafagin would walk by his store every time and just cry. And people asked him, why are you crying? Like, leave the guy alone. (laughs) You're just trying to guilt him. He says, I'm not crying for the reason you think I'm crying. I'm not crying because he succumbed to the pressure. I'm not judging him. I get it. It's not right, but I'm not here to judge him. That's not my role. He says, that's not why I'm crying. I'm crying because this guy barely knows about what Shabbos is. He knows you're not supposed to work, but that's about it. He doesn't know the intricacies of the laws. He doesn't understand the philosophy behind it. Doesn't have a deep understanding in the Kabbalistic meaning of resting and how when we rest, God rests. And how the world is elevated to a higher state of being, connecting to God. He doesn't understand the whole Kabbalistic and Hasidic background. He says, I do. Am I resting the way I should? He says, fine, I'm not working on Shabbos, but am I learning enough Torah on Shabbos? Am I davening enough on Shabbos? Am I, am I connecting enough on Shabbos? I'm not judging him. I understand where he's at. He was able to look at this guy from a very fresh pair of eyes and clarify that he's not crying because he's trying, he's not trying to admonish this person. How can I learn from this? His situation is, is he's put in a tough spot. There's a story I heard a couple of years ago of a, a young man who was at a wedding. He sees a a fellow there, elderly fellow, and he recognizes him. He comes up to him. He says, hey, do you you remember me? The guy's looking at him. You look familiar. Again, the guy is his senior by, by several decades. You look familiar. This guy's in his 30s. You look familiar. Um, you were my teacher back in second grade. Two decades ago. Two and a half decades ago. Oh, wow. How are you? The name rings a bell, right? What, what are you up to now? He says, I'm a teacher now. What inspired you to become a teacher? Every teacher has that question, right? <laughs> Why are you doing it? Don't do it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a very challenging 
Um, he says, you've inspired me to be a teacher. How so? He says, you don't remember? No. He says, you don't know the story? He says, no. We were in second grade, seven, eight years old. A kid comes with a new watch. I was jealous of that watch. I wanted it. So during recess, I went into his backpack. I stole the watch. He came back for recess. His watch is gone. He came crying to you that somebody stole his watch. You made an announcement. Whoever stole the watch, please return it. I was too ashamed. I wasn't going to return it. I realized it was wrong, but I already made a mistake and I'm not going back. It's going to be embarrassing. It'll be humiliating. You made another announcement. Whoever stole it, please return it. You won't get in trouble if you return it. I, I didn't have the guts. You made an announcement. Last call. Otherwise, we're lining everybody up. We're doing a search. You ended up lining us all up. And I'm there shaking. Because this is going to be humiliating. I'm going to be shamed. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be labeled as a thief. None of my friends are going to trust me. And I'm this eight years old, eight year old that's just freaking out. And the um, as soon as you were about to check everybody's pockets, you made an announcement that everybody needs to close their eyes. And I was so inspired by that gesture of sensitivity that although I did something wrong, it didn't have to become a public thing. And I had the opportunity to repent, essentially. The teacher is just like, wow, you know. Several decades later, you remember that, and that, that inspired you to become a teacher, to become an educator. He says to the teacher, how do you not remember this? It was like such a pivotal moment in my life. The teacher says, my eyes were closed too. He said, I didn't know it was you. God's eyes are closed. He's wearing that talit. He's not going to look at our sins. He's understanding that we're not the best place where we should be. It's not a free pass. It's just empathy to give us the courage to move forward. And we're empowered to do that with other people as well. Right Throughout Yom Kippur and throughout the high holiday season, as we recite this prayer and as we recite the confessional prayers, let's have that in mind, these fresh pair of eyes. How does God view us? How are we to view other people? Okay, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it.